listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Grief Out Loud to launch in 2020. This month marks the fifth anniversary of the show, and whether you're a longtime listener or just joining us, thank you so much for tuning in. Some of you might be here because of your own grief, and some of you might listen because you want to be part of a meaningful community for your grieving friends and family. Today's guest is super familiar with wanting to find that sense of community, and how community can decrease the worry of, am I the only one who feels this way? Shelby Forsythia is a writer, podcaster, and grieving young adult. In 2013, Shelby was barely into her 20s when her mother died of cancer. That loss sent Shelby on a search for information and understanding. And in that search, she found Grief Out Loud, along with many other podcasts and books about grief. She's now the author of the book, Permission to Grieve, and podcast host of Coming Back, Conversations on Life After Loss. She's also a certified grief recovery specialist and offers one-on-one grief guidance for those seeking support, direction, and a way to cultivate some more self-compassion in their grief. We started off the conversation with the intent to talk about Shelby's work and how her queer identity is interwoven in every aspect of her grief. We did get to both of those topics, but along the way, we also talk about how a stolen wallet sparked the idea of giving herself permission to grieve and the ways in which her work is an act of rebellion. I also wanted to share that despite my best hoping, working every day with grieving people does not actually inoculate me against grief showing up in my personal world. Shelby and I recorded this conversation the day after my grandmother died. Because I was so looking forward to talking with Shelby, and because work is one of my habitual outlets for big emotions, I didn't even consider canceling the interview. After almost two decades in this field, compartmentalizing comes almost as naturally as breathing. And if I'm honest, sometimes I forget to breathe in all that compartmentalizing. It really wasn't until I spent time editing the episode that I could see and hear how my grief was actually showing up. The questions I asked came as a surprise, because I didn't really remember asking them, and my responses were a little more stumbly and convoluted than usual. All that to say, listeners, that as we head into this new year and decade, I'm right alongside you, carrying all the ways that grief and the shifting of time overlap. And while I don't normally dedicate Grief Out Loud episodes, it feels right to do it this one time. My grandmother, who I called Nanny Nelly, was a classic New York Italian grandma famous for her stubborn nature, her eggplant parmesan, and her feisty spirit. I'm hoping that wherever she lands next, there's bingo, quality tomatoes, and a good sale on grating cheese. Okay, here's the show. Shelby, thank you so much for being part of Grief Out Loud today. I'm really excited to be here. And we're recording right at the beginning of January. So it's just a few days after New Year's and just a few days and weeks after the winter holidays. I'm curious, is there a particular winter holiday memory of your mom that's been on your mind lately? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know that anybody's 
really asked me that before. I think a lot of the struggle that I have with my grief and with the death of my mom is like replaying her death around the holidays because she died the day after Christmas. And so it's, it's been tricky in the years since she's died to try to not necessarily replace those memories with something different, but remember something happy alongside them. I think one of the the practices or traditions that always comes up, especially when I go home, like I did this year, is making Christmas cookies with my mom. And this is something that my mom, my sister, and I did for years and years and years as kids. And my sister and I still try and uphold the tradition today. But my mom would go to the store and get like, I don't know, five or six rolls of sugar cookie dough and then roll it all out and have little cookie cutters that she inherited from her childhood home and brought with her and then ones that we would win from different classroom projects in elementary school so we have all these different shapes we dump out and so just like choosing the cookie cutters and and tapping them in the flour before they go in the dough and then putting everything in the oven and then having to be the oven timer the checker to make sure nobody burns and then the whole process of mixing frosting by hand and putting on the sprinkles and the decorations like every single cookie has to be different they are all these little individual works of art and that's something she really instilled in us is just like getting lost in the day and getting lost in the activity of making christmas cookies and it essentially was a whole day's activity to the point where all of our relatives would like stream through the kitchen and, and especially my dad would be like, you guys aren't done yet. And then it'd be four <laughs> hours later and we'd be like, no, we're still working. Um, it's something that we continue to this day, but I just remember even as years passing at first, we kind of just got to decorate the cookies. And then as you, as we got older, we got to be the ones to roll the dough or cut the cookies or, or monitor the oven. And so just these small privileges that you get as you get older and can handle yourself in the kitchen, but I guess that's one that comes back really, really vividly if I ask it to. And you mentioned that how a part of your grief has been replaying the day of her death. Have there been things that you've done actively to kind of navigate those memories or those images or those visions? I think something that I talk a lot about with my clients when I do one-on-one grief support is allowing ourselves to go to a place of rumination because I think a lot of people freak out when they start to replay a memory. They're like, no, no, I don't want to see that. It's too traumatic. It's too hard. It's too scary. It's too graphic. And or people will think I'm crazy or that I'm not over it or that I haven't moved on. And especially in the past, I don't know, two, three years or so, I've actually allowed myself to play those memories all the way through. Mm. And I kind of took a page out of psychology's book where they're like, if there's a song stuck in your head, listen to it from beginning to end. And then in theory, I think in a lot of cases, the song leaves because you've started it and completed it. And now it has has the ability to go somewhere else and your brain can travel somewhere else because it's not trying to finish what the song sounds like or keep playing it on loop. And I guess for me to play the memory, to force my brain to remember what happened before the moment she died and then to try and remember after, it's like I get the bookends on the memory And so I've played it from start to finish as much as my brain can reasonably remember of that day. And it's almost like I've swept, it's like I've cleared the way for another memory to come in as opposed to seeing the same five seconds of seeing her dead body over and over and over again, which is traumatizing to me. I'm like, I wonder if I can ask my brain, ask my memory to recall what it was like leading up to that and what it was like after that. And not that those things are any less traumatic, but that vision of her 
dead is what I replayed the most. Um, so almost embracing rumination or leaning into it as opposed to just trying to put a boulder in the road and be like, no, we're not going down that road. That's going to ruin Christmas because Christmas is already ruined. <laughs> Christmas is already ruined. She's already dead. She's going to be dead forever. And so Christmas and the day after are always hard for me. And then in the days leading up to it too, because we got about a week's warning that she was going to die. And so just kind of monitoring that entire time frame of my life, I'll be doing Christmas shopping in Target or something like that. And all of a sudden I'll have a flashback to when I was there seven or eight years ago as she was diagnosed and dying. And I'll just like stand there, let myself have it and then continue. And like the tears come or the anxiety comes or the feeling like I can't breathe. But yeah, I, I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but just kind of leaning, leaning into the fact that my brain is remembering that as opposed to trying to stop it. I think so much of the struggle and grief is trying to stop what's happening. I'm like, what if we just let it happen. No, that makes so much sense. And it's really interesting to think about that idea of putting a bookends and a container on it and, and having some choice of like, I'm going to conscientiously and consciously engage with this memory. Makes me think of like, if someone's knocking at the door and the, the doors, the knock is scaring you, like running away from the door knock, like all you can hear is the knocking of the door, the knocking of the door. And then if you create more of a narrative of choosing to go to the door, choosing to look who's on the other side, choosing to open the door, having a conversation, shutting the door, walking away, that there adds so many more elements to it. So it's not just that knocking in your head. Well, and there's a component too, that's really fantastic that you picked up on that, because especially in your story, there's a component of choice and power. It's like, I choose to go to the door. I actively walk my feet there my hand touches the doorknob, I pull it open, I decide whether or not I want to communicate with whatever's on the other side of it. And I, I never noticed that until now. I'm getting chills talking about this. But in embracing rumination, we make friends with the monster and we decide whether or not we want to talk to it. And there's a reclaiming of power instead of being at the mercy of my mind, which I think is how a lot of grieving people fear is I cannot stop the flashbacks. One of my clients called it having a flashbulb memory. And I was like, oh my gosh, what a great way to phrase that. Because she's like, I just go back to these places. And it's like, I've literally been transported through a flashback, like you see in a movie or like in a sitcom. She's like, my body's not even in the present anymore. And so cho choosing to be there, or once we're there, choosing to stick around and feel out a little bit of what happens while we're there, can almost give us these tiny little incremental inches of our power or our sense of control or even our sense of trust in ourselves back to us. And that's really, really powerful. It's something I guess I started doing unconsciously, but now that I'm working with clients, I'm like, oh, let's see if we can't get this to happen by choice, consciously, yeah. Almost like the thing you were instinctively drawn to doing now, you're able to be in it and think, oh, well, that's, that's actually what I was doing. I just was doing it before, but now I can talk about it, I have a name for it. Yeah, well, and I guess, I don't know that I was instinctively drawn to do it as much as I had a thought one day of like, what if I just let this happen? It was kind of a daredevil reckless thought. <laughs> I'm like, the worst has already happened. So what would happen if I just let myself sink into this? It, I was more approaching it from a place of, I'm tired of being scared of this thing. And so it seems like the only other alternative is to lean into it and watch what happens. Mm -hmm. And so there's almost a morbid curiosity of like, will I die? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm laughing about it now, but at the time I was like, am I really going to go here mm. and allow myself to go all the way here without putting up the walls or the armor or 
the boulder in the road that says, stop it, we're not going in that direction. And I found out once I did, it was kind of like a path that circled back on itself and I landed back where I was when I started. And I'm like, oh, I'll probably have to go down this road again. I'm going to have to relive this memory or this flashback or this picture again, probably for as long as I live. But huh, that's what the road looks like. Yeah, and speaking of this idea of like taking risks and building confidence in your capacity to withstand all that comes with grief. I was thinking too, like people navigate their grief in so many different ways. And and one of the ways you chose was to go public, go on the airwaves and start a podcast. What inspired you to do that? You know, what's funny as I don't do a lot of things under the influence of others. I've always kind of been I'm going to do it my way. And if you want to come along, that's great. But if you're not, that's also okay. Um, But I actually started a podcast because people told me I should. And it's one of the first things I ever did because of not pressure, but like at the request of others, I had started writing about my grief privately, like on a personal Facebook page that was locked to other people after my mom died, because I started reading and listening to other podcasts about it. I would just share what I learned. And then a while after that, I started writing my own insights on grief and or kind of like tying things back into the death of my mom. And people kept telling me it was one of those weird universe things where within the like a six month time span, four different people were like, you should start a podcast and none of them knew each other. And they were pretty new to my grief story as well. Like they weren't people who had known me for a long time. And so they're like, you're doing that. Oh, well, you should start a podcast. I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) And um, so I went down this rabbit hole on YouTube of like, what does it take in terms of equipment, in terms of, uh, you know, software and editing and time. And then when I turned on the mic, I kind of just showed up with the intention of how can I be here with people who are grieving first and foremost is there anything that can be taught or learned here in the exploration of grief? And how can I keep reminding them that grief is meant to be incorporated into our lives and not cured or healed? And ultimately that none of us, no matter where we are in the world, is alone in it. And this this concept of just having another voice in the room that gets it has proven so tremendously powerful. And I'm sure you hear this as well for Grief Out Loud. People turn on my show and then they'll write me. They're like, it's just so nice to be in the same room with somebody who gets it because it's such a rarity in the aftermath of loss to feel like we're surrounded by family, friends, coworkers, whoever that actually understand and comprehend the enormity of what we're going through. I didn't really know what it would turn into. And it has really turned into this connecting force that has built a community of grievers, I call them grief growers, that listen to the podcast and they talk about the episodes and things that they're going through together, as well as like monthly video hangouts that we all do together and grief journaling. And then it's actually expanded into courses and books. And these are all just, again, things that people have requested that I do. They're like, I love this. Can you make it in this format? And I'm like, yeah, I'll try it. Let's see what happens. Um, So it very much feels like a co-creative journey that I'm on with a bunch of people grieving all over the world. And it's really cool. It's like one of the weirdest unexpected gifts of my life. And there's something really intriguing too of the idea of being able to, you know, call up a podcast and listeners Shelby's podcast again is coming back and you should definitely go listen to all of the episodes. And it's like you call up this podcast, you tune into someone else's story 
about grief and you can take in what they are saying. It can connect with your story in some way. And yet you don't have to interact with that person. And I think there's something really powerful about that sometimes in grief where it's just enough to carry our own story, but then I don't have to actually interface with their story. Yeah. And, and something that comes to mind, I recently did an interview with Rob Bell, who's a, a spiritual leader uh, in the Christian community out in LA. And I talked about doing grief work is a lot like as I am feeding others, I'm also being fed by them. And so it feels like a very infinity process where like I'm putting things out and then people are giving me stuff back. And so that's how I, I continue generating the work. But I remember when I was grieving the loss of my mom and I still actively am, but especially in those first, I don't know, two to three years or so when it was, I was robbed of my focus and I really couldn't work that well. And my relationships with my family were strained. Like when it was new, I was like, I don't have the energy to feed. I can only be fed at Mm. this time. And so to to be forced to do nothing but receive information from others or yeah, not have to output anything because I was already grieving. I'm like, this is exhausting enough. Um, Yeah. I think that's where a lot of, I hesitate to use the word gratitude, but I think that's where a lot of understanding and empathy comes in in the podcast world is because there's just this thankfulness of, Oh, you're not asking anything of me. All I have to do is tune in. And another one of the offerings that you've created is your book, uh, which is entitled Permission to Grieve. What does that mean to you today? This is actually kind of funny how it came about. Kind of two things unrelated, but then you put them together and you're like, oh, of course that would be a book. Um, (laughs) The first thing that happened was about two and a half years after my mom died, I was working in a tea shop in downtown Chicago and I had my headphones in and my bag was hanging on the back of my chair, which is like a rookie mistake. But somebody pilfered my wallet and after my mom dying, this seemed like another traumatic and terrible loss, especially because, you know, A, that's where all my money and cash was, but B, I had just applied for a job. So my social security card was in there too. And I'm like, they could do anything with my ID, with my social security, like everything had gone except for my bus pass, which I kept in my coat. And so I took a bus home and I was like, I have nothing. I literally have nothing. And on top of losing my mother, which already felt like having nothing, I was like, now I'm really in a deep hole. And some part of my mind is like, I know these cards are replaceable. I know it's just money. Like there's the logical side of it. But in that moment, I was not concerned with any of that. And so I went home and I cranked up my stereo and something in me was just like, get this out or something awful will happen. And so I started raging and like banging my fist on the hardwood floor and like screaming and yelling F you at the universe. And, and this went on for about 20 minutes to half hour or so. But when I was done, I was like laying on the floor of my apartment and I felt like a glass that had just been run through the dishwasher. Like it was very sparkly and very like clean. And I got up and made a cup of tea in, in my kitchen and I was staring at this spot on the floor where I'd literally just threw an adult temper tantrum. And this little voice in my head said, you just gave yourself permission to grieve. Mm. And I was like, whoa, what is that? And so I I kept that phrase in my mind for a long time because I was like, I like how that felt. That was the very first time I, I stopped. I stopped stopping myself basically from putting that boulder in the road of no, we're not going there or putting that armor up of people will think you're crazy. You'll go off the deep end. You're never going to come back from this. It will never end. Like all of these stories I told myself about what would happen if I actually allowed grief to show up 
were destroyed in that moment because I actually let myself grieve the loss of this wallet. But then also underneath that was the feeling of I am safe in the world. Nothing bad can ever happen. Like these things that also die when we lose somebody we love. And so I was simultaneously grieving my mother as I was grieving the fact that somebody had stolen my wallet. And then about a year later, I started my podcast coming back and this word permission just kept coming up over and over and over again. And I was like, what is this? Because people would talk about, I wish my friends and family had just given me permission to do X. This tiny word permission just kept coming up over and over again. I was like, something is happening here. There's a conversation we're not having. And so essentially that's what the book covers. And I came up with these two phrases for societal concepts that I think have been around forever. The first one is life rejection. And the second one is self-abandonment. And they're the two things that the world teaches us to do when bad things happen. Life rejection is all about if something's going wrong in your life, just compartmentalize it and keep going. It's very much that UK phrase of keep calm and carry on when there's a war on. And so like when things are going bad in your relationship, just focus on work. It's kind of that those euphemisms of look on the bright side, see the silver lining, et cetera, et cetera. You can probably think of like 50 different ways to say that. And then conversely, self-abandonment is society teaching us that it's not okay to feel parts of ourselves. So anytime you feel bad, quarantine that off. Anytime you feel sad, quarantine that off. Angry, depressed, like anytime these feelings that are unattractive or conventionally undesirable or conventionally even quote unquote negative, push those away in favor of harnessing things like gratitude, thankfulness, joy, happiness, productivity, kind of whatever society has decided to favor. But what's interesting and what nobody tells you is that when grief rolls in, these two tools no longer work. Because when grief rolls in, the entirety of your life is bad. Everything is affected by grief, homework, relationships, family, health, etc. And so you can't reject the whole of your life, but that's what you're taught to do and the aftermath of loss. And then in self-abandonment, you're pretty much always feeling bad in grief. Even though we hit these milestones sometimes after loss, like I graduated college six months after my mom died and I felt joy on that day, but underneath was always grief. Society teaches us to quarantine that off but in grief, all of my emotions had that underpinning of grief. And so I pushed the entirety of myself away. So I pushed away myself. I pushed away my life. I'm like, this is what society's taught me to do. Why isn't it working? <laughs> so that's the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book is how to give yourself permission to grieve if you don't know already, or if it's a totally unfamiliar concept to you, because you have to unlearn society's crap first, <laughs> and then you relearn permission to grieve. And so there's essentially three sections. There's permission to feel is the first one, which is feelings and emotions related to grief. Permission to be is the hardest one. It's the second one that I give, but it's permission to change identities in the aftermath of loss, whether that was uh, a caregiver, a daughter, a father, a homeowner, uh, a responsible person, somebody who always woke up early. So many attributes of us change in the aftermath of loss and ironing that out in grief is hard and nobody gives us permission to really not know who or what we are yet. Um, and then the last one is permission to do. And this is permission to take grief outside of the body and hang pictures on your wall or keep a memento of them at your office or start a charity or a fundraiser or something that's like a physical representation. And I think a lot of people are afraid to do that for fear of looking like I'm not over it yet. And so what the book does, 
besides giving permission to grieve, is consistently untangling and dismantling all of these societal beliefs and tools that we are not allowed to have this really normal human experience. I'm really appreciating how the idea of rebellion and agency tie together in this. And you talked earlier about how you're not really one to do what other people tell you to do. And so it makes a lot of sense to me that you'd be like, oh, this is what society is saying is okay or not okay to do in grief. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do the opposite of that. And the idea that if I'm choosing to give myself permission to grieve, again, I'm taking some sense of agency and control about my experience and how I choose to share that or engage with that with other people. Yeah. And I love that you touched on that because I would never classify my work as subversive or rebellious or like against the system, but oh my God, it totally is. <laughs> I'm like, I'm picturing myself like shaking my fist at the government or something like that. But yeah, it's like totally true. The systems that are in place as a grieving person, I noticed, I'm like, this isn't working. And it all, again, kind of like going down the road of, will I replay these thoughts of my mom dying? I'm like, what would happen if I did? And so it all started out with this question of what would happen if I actually gave myself permission to grieve? If I do give myself permission to grieve, what does that look like? And those two questions really informed, I mean, honestly, the entirety of the book. As you were talking, you touched too on the idea of identity and that so often in grief, our identities change or get taken away from us in some way. And that can be something like my identity as a parent if my child dies or my identity as a sibling if my brother or sister die. And one of your episodes in Coming Back that really like really stood out to me was it was one you did with queer trans poet Jay Mace III. And, and in that episode, you talked a lot about how your queer identity is overlaid with pretty much every aspect of grieving your mom. And you came out to your mom three years before she died. Yeah. So how, how did that part of your identity, how did that become a part of your relationship with your mom? I feel like it's something that I'm always wrestling with. I was actually uh, in a relationship with a woman a few years ago who spoke about her brain as if it was a, a filing system, like a series of file cabinets. And I thought this was so clever because she looked at me once as I was telling her the story of like my mom died before she ever accepted my sexuality and who I was and who I dated. And, uh, and she's like, Oh, your brain just hasn't created a file for that yet. And I'm like, Oh, because for so much of our lives, we can kind of relate what happens to us to other things that have already happened. And so we're like, Oh, I have a drawer for that. Or I have a file for that. Or this is similar enough that even if I create a new file, it still goes in the same cabinet. Um, But when grief happens, everything is so new and so bizarre. It's like our brains are trying to figure out, okay, where does this go in the grand scheme of my life? And I feel like I've started a folder on my relationship to my mom and my relationship to my sexuality, and I'm constantly filling it with things, but it's not, I don't know that it will ever be finished. It's consistently one of the biggest pain points in my grief that she did not accept my sexuality and in fact was angry about it before she died. One of the last memories I have of her before she died is us having a fight about my future wedding to a woman in a mall. There's a lot of fire and a lot of shattered glass here still. Like it feels sharp and pointy. And yet simultaneously, I keep looking to these books and these resources and these stories of other people who have been in similar circumstances, whether they were estranged from parents who never really knew them, or they were queer and their parents didn't accept them and and they've died or they moved far away and so they're not in touch anymore. 
And something that I came upon, I mean, literally just days ago before you and I are having this conversation is the work by Byron Katie. It's essentially four questions you can ask yourself about the stories that you tell yourself about who you are and what's going on in your life. The first question is, is it true? The second question is, can you absolutely know it's true without a shadow of a doubt? The third question is, what happens when you believe that thought? The fourth question is, who would you be without that thought? And the fifth question is, can you see a reason to drop this thought? And one of the the hardest things about my mom dying before she accepted my sexuality is the story I told myself is, was, my mom never really saw me, so she never really loved me. And that's a hard story to carry around. She died when I was 21 years old. And so I was kind of at that crossroads between child and adult. And we hadn't had the opportunity to really, I hate to phrase it this way, but like come back from hating each other. (laughs) I, I, I pushed away pretty hard when I was a teenager, which is funny now that you mentioned rebellion. So I'm like, yeah, that's probably really true. Maybe that's where some of that spitfire comes from. But so we never really got back to a place where we really liked each other and appreciated each other and saw not even eye to eye, but respected why we believe the things that we did. Because pretty much as soon as I stopped being a teenager, both of my parents were in and out of the hospital near death for various things. My dad lived, my mom did not. And so to kind of be deprived of that returning to the returning to the mother figure, but also as an adult experience I was deprived of. And so the story of my mom never really saw me, so she never really loved me is what's been replaying in my head literally up until three days ago. And now I've gotten this new teaching and new information. I'm like, oh, interesting. What will I do with that? And so now I'm kind of weighing the possibility of, is it true? I'm like, I don't really know. Hmm. I don't really know without a shadow of a doubt, which is the second question. What happens when I believe that thought? I'm incredibly depressed. I feel very hopeless. I'm not kind to myself, and I also have a lot of nightmares. Who would I be without that thought? I think somebody who feels like she can walk around in the world assured that she was loved and is loved, continues to be loved. And then the fifth question is, can you see a reason to drop this thought? And the answer for me is yes. I don't know if I'm ready to yet, though, which is kind of the crux that I'm at and finding this file folder for my brain of like how how do I negotiate dropping this thought? Is there some gain that I'm getting from hanging on to this thought? I think sometimes our brains just need to repeat things over and over again to really understand them. And I've been repeating this story in the six years that she died. I'm like, what would happen if I didn't need to repeat this story anymore? What if the story was different? And this question of, can you know for absolutely sure? I'm like, I don't know what kind of reckoning she did on her deathbed. I have no idea. And so even that entering into my mind of, how do you really know for sure that she was not at peace with you and did not have love for you before she took her last breath has been really radicalizing for me. And so I'm kind of in a spit. You're catching me at a really <laughs> weird time right now because I'm like, this is all new information and my mind is totally blown and I don't know what to do with it yet. It's just really incredible how much this story has been informing my grief, which informs my relationships, which informs my view of myself, which informs my work, which informs, everything is informed by the stories that we tell ourselves. So if they're somehow different, how do you know for sure? Wow, that's going to change the roots of what I do quite a bit. As you're talking, I, I keep thinking about how many teens and young adults have been in a similar place of we were just at that point where this relationship with my parent specifically 
may have evolved and may have helped us come back to each other in a different way of, of two adults knowing one another. And, and that idea of my mom never knew me. And I think about how many teens and young adults and people older than that are still like, do I know myself and how hard it is for us to really truly know one another. And it's almost like an impossible situation. Yeah. And well, how possible is it to really truly know everything about everyone? And I don't know that it is, but I think trying to get where somebody is coming from is as close as we can get. Mm -hmm. And the more that my mom has been dead, like the longer amount of time, but also the more conversations I've had with my dad and her sisters and my sister and even people that just acquaintance knew her. I've gathered so much more information about why she believed what she did, especially with regard to my sexuality. And it's been really interesting continuing to reconcile that information with the story that I was telling myself. Again, I was not seen, so I was not loved. And this idea of my sexuality was coming up against her faith. And for her, faith was literally the thing that saved her life. And so for something that was so at my core to come up against something that was so at her core, not just I go to church because I'm a good person, it's I go to church because I genuinely feel this is going to save me, has already saved me, will continue to save my life. The stakes were that high for her, of Mm. course we would butt heads. But at the time at 21, I'm like, I couldn't see that, worth crap. You know, (laughs) I just thought she was being stubborn and bigoted but at its roots, and especially as I've continued to seek out and hear stories of her, I'm like, wow, something in my essential was challenging something in her essential. And we, we ran right into each other about it. It's fascinating, too, to think about that idea, that, that core story that you had, that like my mom never knew me, and so I was never truly loved. And this idea of as the relationship with your mom continues to evolve after her death by getting to know her through friends and family, almost like you're getting to, by getting to know her, it's loosening that story for you that she could never know you. Yeah. It does feel like a coming back. I I wish I was coming back to her as a live person in the world. But if this is the only way that I can communicate with her while I'm still alive until I die, then like, so be it. I'm going to keep coming back to her and getting as close as I possibly can. And Shelby, you know, we've talked a little bit about your podcast coming back. We talked about your book, Permission to Grieve. You also offer online grief support services, so many things that you offer. What else should listeners know about your work? I think the number one thing that I always want to convey to people is that the reason that I and my work exist is because when I was grieving, I wanted to live in a world where grief was seen and welcomed and even embraced. And that was like a radical idea to me. And so literally everything that I do, whether it is, you know, the monthly grief support or the the grief journaling that I release on Mondays or the book or the podcast or, or online courses or things like that, like everything has this core element of how can we make a world, literally create a world where grief is seen and acknowledged welcomed, like you can actually come into the house. (laughs) I want to do so much more than just normalize it and make it a real experience. I want to make it something that we really honor and appreciate because it is so big of an experience, but also it is so 
human. We've been grieving for as long as humans have been alive. And so literally everything I do, every, every piece of work that goes out in the world, I don't really care how you get in touch with me. I just hope that you do <laughs> through any piece of work that I do is just how can we stop telling the story if we're not allowed to have this and start telling a story where grief is embraced and seen and welcomed. Yeah. Those are like the big three words that have been revolving around in my brain for, for a while now. I'm feeling really grateful in this moment of, of moving past the idea of like, you know, there can be a place of like, okay, it, it's okay that you're grieving, but please do it over there where I can't see it. Right. Versus, wow, thank you for sharing your grief with me. I'm grateful for this ability to connect with you on this level. And it seems like you're part of this movement of let's all look at grief. Let's all be part of this as a community. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like we've reached this tipping point in the world where grief is going from taboo to inconvenient. But I want to move it from inconvenient to embraced. And that's like phase two. <laughs> well, I'm really grateful for all the work that you're doing out there to, you know, move it from inconvenient to embraced. Thank you for that framework. I'll be thinking about that for the next couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And listeners, I'm going to link to all of the ways that you can connect with Shelby, including the episode that I got to do with her just recently. So I hope you'll reach out to her. She's got a Facebook group you can be part of podcast, book, journaling, like you can just every day be part of Shelby's uh, work out there in moving grief into a place where we're embracing it. So Shelby, thank you again for being part of Grief Out Loud. Thank you so much. This was way cool. And listeners out there, thank you for being part of our audience. We appreciate you tuning in and moving this from a place of just me and guests talking into the void and knowing that there's actually people out there listening. So if this podcast has meant something for you, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at help at So thanks for listening and hope you'll join us again next time. 